Hello, and welcome to APQC's podcast. Uh, my name is Sarah Blackman. I'll be the facilitator for the questions today. And also on the phone here, we have APQC's Process and Program uh, Management, Research Program Manager, Holly Lyke-Hoagland. And then we have David Doney, the Vice President of Internal Audit at CERVA. Thank you both for joining us today. Great to be here. Yeah, great. So on May 28th, APQC um, hosted a webinar called Best Practices in Data Visualization. It was a very well-registered, very well-attended webinar. David Doney was our speaker for that webinar, um, and it went really well, so well that we didn't have enough time to answer all of the questions that were asked. So today we're going to um, cover some of the questions that may have already been covered on the, on the live webinar itself. Um, but we're going to go into all of the questions that weren't answered as well. So uh, without any further ado, I think I will go ahead and get started. Um, both David and Holly, feel free to answer these questions um, as you'd like, all right? Okay. So let's go ahead and start with the first one. Um, what, do or what do organizations need to make better data-driven decisions? key part of it is having a data strategy overall. Um, data should be looked at as an asset to be optimized. It's increasingly a competitive differentiator for a business to manage your information better than the competition. There's a great article on this called Competing on Analytics by Thomas Davenport of Harvard Business Review. Uh, it's often in their sort of greatest hits articles, and there's a book of the same name that Davenport put together. But he talked about some of the elements that I, I'm going to go through here. One of them is the executive support at the top for major analytics initiatives. Another is having a data analysis process. Um, best practice companies will share information with vendors and customers to simplify how they do business and make themselves easier to do business with. Um, you'll see companies building analytical capabilities, whether those are from a central analytics group outward and also who they're hiring and who they are looking at to build special advanced statistical skill or other areas. And then also making sure they move key data used to run the business into data warehouses so everybody can get at it, and there's one version of the truth. Perfect. Thanks. Holly, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I think the only thing, and I kind of already went with that with the executive support for major analytics, um, there is that to make sure that the data-driven decisions are, are hitting what the stakeholders need. So making sure that you have a lot of upfront kind of buy-in conversations with the people who need the support and use those data, the data to make sure you're capturing the right information and, and packaging it correctly. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Let's keep on moving then. Uh, we have another question. In your experience, David, this is directed to, uh, to you, I guess, what are the most important things to keep in mind when visualizing data? I think the most important thing is about the audience. You know, what is it exactly that you're trying to communicate to them, and then what information exactly do they need? You know, what is the decision that they are trying to make? Um, they may have a variety of alternatives they're looking at, and to the extent that your information displays can help them make those decisions, the better. Um, often, you know, the analyst, the trick is for us to try to pull that information out of the data and then communicate it um, in a way that helps that user make their decision. So. As an analyst, you might try dozens of different displays, but in the end, you may pull it down to just a few that really cover what the uh, decision maker needs, just to take that all that noise that's in the data set and, and just distill out the signal for the decision maker. Great, thanks, Holly. Did you have anything additional? No, I think David covered that perfect. All right. <clears throat> 
Well, how about what techniques do you find make data presentations most effective? There are, there are so many of these, um, and, and uh, people are so creative in how they do this that I'll just throw a few ideas out there, and I, I'm sure people in the audience that will uh, be hearing this podcast, you guys have dozens as well, and I'm sure the APQC might like to hear some of those. But um, each information display should have some kind of a key takeaway. So there's a key message that you're trying to, to show with a particular chart or table. Um, you want to make sure that that message and the display are very tightly linked. So if you can't put a very simple caption right above that display, then you may want to revise it a little bit um, to make sure that the message and the display are very tightly linked. Also, when you're sequencing your presentation, it should follow a storyline so you can kind of flip from page to page through the presentation and your sort of flow of language continues. Sort of a, uh, an example of how I do that sometimes when I'm flipping through presentations is I'll read sort of the caption or the headline that a person should take away from that slide and then I flip to the next one and if it doesn't flow very cleanly, then I make a revision. Often I find the sequence gets revised over and over and over again even after the content gets pretty close to finalized. Um, first of all, also I should say if you are displaying a comparison, so say a trend of rising revenue in the business or sales, um, a user might logically ask, well, what's the cause of that? Why are, the, why are the revenues going up? And so that would trigger what you would put on the next couple of slides, which might be you know, increasing the, the, the volume or the number of units that you sold or the price per unit, you know, graphics related to that or statistics related to that. So it's, sometimes it's what's happening, what's the comparison over time, and then, okay, why did that happen? Um, the comparison and then the cause information. Um, actually, David, I have a question kind of that, that spins off of this. From your uh, experience, do you find it more effective to kind of take the, the huge, big key takeaway and then break down the different data support parts, or is it kind of about building up to the big takeaway? So starting about like the increasing volume or price per unit and then the big takeaway is the effect it's having on the market share, or do you want to start with the market share and then break it down to the causes? Yeah, I think it depends on your audience. There are times when either will work um, I tend to like to give people the bottom line and then go to the detail behind it. Okay. So if the company's had a big sales increase, I would say, hey, we had a big sales increase and here's why, as opposed to saying price has been doing this and volume has been doing this and therefore the end result was that. Okay, thank you. Great. Thanks, both of y'all. Uh, let's see, next question here. With growing access to large amounts of data, how can data analysts ensure that they're using the right data analysis framework? Yeah, that's, that's a good, really good question. I think that a lot of companies maybe kind of wing this um, to a certain extent. They have, they do data analysis monthly or quarterly and they have processes for that. But when it comes to a big data analysis project, they might not have a methodology that they use. You know, maybe they use DMAIC, maybe they don't. I think there are several good frameworks out there in the industry that people can use to tailor one for their own usage and then realize that if that framework is comprehensive, then you won't need every step on every project. Um, you might use a, an eclectic choice of tools that changes from project to project, but at least you have the full list there and you can go through and think about it. So it's sort of like a project plan under each of the phases that I'm about to list, which are generically uh, requirements, planning of the analysis, um, collecting the data, processing the data, cleaning it, um, exploratory data analysis where you use a lot of the tools of different chart types to try to understand the messages in the data, uh, modeling if you're doing some more advanced work like regression or hypothesis testing, 
and then reporting or data visualization for your audience. Um, I think these phases are iterative. Also, you'll find that you're adding lots and lots of tasks under each one, and you can decide um, in your generic project plan, you can decide which one um, which ones make sense for the particular project. So the data science field has several of these. Actually, the uh, intelligence analysis field has something called the intelligence cycle that is pretty useful for this. And then you've got Six Sigma Demaic. All of those are very good places to start in building out a framework. Um, and then as you go project to project, just kind of feedback what you actually did into that framework so that you can keep making it better. You should have some kind of a, a post-mortem meeting or review to talk about what worked and didn't work in the framework, what should be added, taken away, and so that it becomes a living um, problem-solving methodology for the company. Um, one of the things that we found, actually, and, and we did some a little bit of discovery work on this earlier as far as big data goes, is I think those that stage one requirements and part two planning seems to be very, very important in making sure the data analysts are doing and measuring and, and analyzing the right things because statisticians, we're very good at punching the numbers and, and looking and seeing what patterns are, but we don't always understand what they mean and from the business context. So what we saw was that you needed to have kind of a partnership really early on in those two stages with somebody with a new statistics to an extent, but also had a great grasp on the business acumen and the business needs. Uh, would you say that's fair? It is, and I think you know, when you're putting together the team that's going to work on the data analysis, you may need a variety of skill sets, and as you're doing the requirements and planning, you may have to figure out who really needs to be on board in that team. You may have a, a Six Sigma person or a facilitator. You may have certain owners in the business that are going to be contributing resources. You may have a steering committee or group for it, a sponsor. Um, you may have lower-level analysts of different types of skill. It could be uh, you have to assemble that project team early based on those requirements, so yeah, that's a good point. All right, anything else on that one? Okay. So how about what would be the best practice to display the progress of a portfolio of projects? I think there are a variety of ways you can do this. And uh, I found all, sometimes when I'm looking up, trying to find some ideas for images, I'll go online and look up something like, in this case, I looked up the project portfolio status report and looked at all kinds of different examples that were out there online. The, uh, a couple of things from the from the theory, at least, you're looking at a part-to-whole problem here. In other words, sort of the pie chart idea. Projects are in varying stages of completion, and you're trying to explain what they are. So that's one of the, those key eight quantitative messages that Stephen Few talks about. Another one is deviation. So you're trying to show how cost, scope, or time are doing relative to their plan. And so a couple of ways you can do it. One would be to set up a, a simple spreadsheet, assuming you have a, a number of projects that you can identify down the side. You might include a, uh, the project, the stage that it's in, and I find that the Excel um, has a, Excel has an option that you can use that allows you to put a bar right into an individual cell. You can find that under the conditional formatting option, so you can look at that. Also then the scope, cost, and time you can convert into a heat map, so you can use a red, yellow, or green dot for each of those. So you'd have a column for each with that red, yellow, or green dot. And then as you need more information, Around the timeline, you could literally have columns that cover the months or the periods, like quarters that are involved. Um, you could also add some individual columns, say, for budget versus the actual so far or year-to-date cost for the project. You can keep adding those additional columns. But by having the stage of the project um, indicated as a series of bars, 
and then the scope, cost, and time as a heat map, you get a lot of information out there quickly for a user. Thanks, David. Holly, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to that? No, I think David had all the major points because really about looking at a portfolio of projects, you're looking at the variation from expected to what's actually occurring. And that's going to help you pinpoint what projects are, are doing well and which ones actually really desperately need the project team or a, a group of uh, what I'm looking for, stakeholders. So senior project managers or decision makers to then be able to pick out which ones they need to look at and actually apply some uh, problem solving, group problem solving too. Um, which one of the variables you use depends on what drives your organization's project portfolio decisions. But making sure to include variation for the major categories from your business case and then having your project teams update those on a regular basis and feed into something similar to this kind of output is perfect. Great, thank you. Uh, now this one might have a couple of explanations, so we probably do want to hear from both of you on this one, but somebody's asking how you create a quadrant chart. Sure, and I, I think of a quadrant chart as just a, a, a way of thinking about a scatter plot. So each point is, re is represented by some type of X and Y coordinate and a label. Um, typically, I just put the horizontal and vertical lines manually in the PowerPoint um, just to create the quadrants. In some cases, I may move the lines a little bit to um, help affect the decision making that's going on. But typically, the trick here is for the analyst to determine what the relevant axes are for the chart based on the decisions the user is trying to make. So if the quadrants then imply alternative courses of action, the axis selection was probably a good one. Okay. Uh, a good example of a quadrant chart is kind of a two-by-two two matrix for, say, a product portfolio. So let's say on the y-axis, you will typically have kind of the value of the projects, right? Um, that could be anything from net promoter value to that revenue generated. Oh, net promoter value, sorry, net present value. And then along the bottom, you'll typically on the x-axis have the risk or even uh, the likelihood to execute the project or product. So the idea behind the quadrant chart then is to break up into four groups and categorize your cases into different, different things. So using that product portfolio example, if you look up at the top left, those would be projects that are high value and high ability to execute, right? Um, it just means these are projects that the company really should consider investing resources in, where the bottom left-hand corner or the bottom right-hand corner would be projects that are low value and very difficult to execute. So most likely those types of projects the organization needs to not invest any resources in or they need to go back to the drawing board. Whereas if you say the left-hand bottom quadrant, those are projects that are low value, but they're low, hard, not hard to execute, which means they're probably incremental. So those, again, are kind of ones that are easy to invest in quickly, and they're going to generate at least some steady income. Um, again, the idea behind that is just kind of help put categories around whatever you're trying to make decisions on and then support those decision-making. Love it. Um, Holly, I think your marketing hat came on with your net promoter value comment. I think it did. I was confusing <laughs> uh, R&D and marketing again. It happens. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go on to the next question. Uh, could you please explain the gray shaded background in the Fred graphs? Uh, are those years of decline? 
And yes, they are. Um, FRED is the Federal Reserve Economic Database. Um, you can get almost any data series you'd like on the economy out there, um, both for U.S. and then also in, in, in many, for many data series in foreign countries. The gray background is indicative of a, of a period when there was a recession. And so there's a toggle switch in the database, in the, uh, in the user interface, that you can just turn on and off if you want those recession bars in there or if you want to take them out. All right, quick and easy. Uh, next one, when your analysis suggests that past practices may have, have a baked-in error or bias, how do you tactfully impugn the previous analyses? There, there are a couple of, of quotes around this one that I, I find uh, rather amusing in dealing with these, because this is a difficult people challenge, right? And uh, Ben Franklin said something in his Constitutional Convention speech, which is one of my favorites, and it's a speech everybody should read. It's short, and it's uh, really packed with a lot of good information, but he said, I've experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions, even on important subjects, which I once thought right but found to be otherwise. Um, Keynes has a shorter version of it where he says, when the facts change, I change my opinion. What do you do, sir? Um, so those between Ben Franklin and John Maynard Keynes, we've got some good background for that one. But, you know, generally you can't expect everybody to be fact-based, right? Well, some people are ideological and they won't change their views no matter what. But I think if, if you look at, if you put yourself in the shoes of the person that did that analysis before, you know, you may be building on some of their analysis, meaning without it you might not have been able to do a better analysis. Maybe they were, uh, they helped, you know, put you on that path so you can give them credit. The goal is to make it a win-win situation when you go in front of a decision maker to say, you know, maybe we've thought about this and we have come to the conclusion that, you know, there was some error or bias in the prior analysis and now we're, we think this is the right answer. Help them save face and generally in organizations it's a lot more important to show cooperation you're working together than who the smartest person in the room is. Um, so I think those are a couple of things. If you are trying to make it a win-win and you bring that person with you, um, you work with them in private first, then you go together to the boss to say, we've worked on this together, we've, we've thought about it, maybe the, we have done some fuller consideration or maybe there is better information, to paraphrase Franklin, and then, uh, you know, here, here's a better way to do it. Great. Holly, did you have anything to add there? Actually, no, that was perfect. All right. There you go, David. Perfect. I like it that way. All right. <laughs> Okay. A PowerPoint deck presentation often sounds to me, the asker, like a lecture in which the audience is not supposed to participate. A live presentation using a visualization tool uh, like Tableau evokes more discussion, but it can become more disorganized. How do you choose? Yeah, that's, that's really tricky. I think, again, it's about the, the user and the audience that you're talking to and what they're their interests are. For example, I think when you're doing exploratory data analysis, meaning as an analyst you're trying to get your mind around the data, you may sit down with some lower level managers and actually do interactive sessions with the software where you are tinkering with the data together and, it, and that the, they are able to ask questions and you learn a lot about it because chances are you might not know as much about the business as that business person working with that data day in and day out and so interactively working together can really bring out some good information. On the other hand, when you sit down with the top executive, you can say, hey, I've got this great new, new tool here. Let's all, let's play with some data. The executive may want to kick you out of the office after about 10 minutes. They just may not be interested in playing around with the data. They just want to make a decision. They need the bottom line information. 
And so there may only be a handful of key um, visualizations that you're using, a few tables and charts that you're using to help them make the decision. Um, you know, I worked in corporate FP&A for a while, and I had a chance to sit down in the meetings where strategy was being developed and sitting with some of the top executives of the company as they go through their day. And it's amazing how little time these people have and how they are constantly moving from meeting to meeting and just have very, very short attention spans. And so to expect them to sit and kind of do a participative back and forth session with the data tool I think is unrealistic. Um, you may have an occasional executive that's willing to do that. But for the most part, I would keep that with the lower level folks and then filter it down just to the key messages for the executives at the top. Um, a couple of interesting things that are happening with this, uh, Edward Tufte, who's the father of modern data visualization, he has a, a pretty extensive critique of PowerPoint that he calls the, the cognitive style of PowerPoint. He really doesn't like the fact that you're constantly using phrases or that um, it is exactly as the questioner asked. You know, it looks like a lecture where people are not participating. Um, at the other end of that spectrum, you've got Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, who will make sure people actually read the information. He'll actually have a bunch of executives in a meeting. They all sit for the first few minutes and read the information, and then they actually discuss it. So it becomes more interactive. So one way to balance that is just to put questions in your, in your um, presentation materials where appropriate to prompt people to have a discussion with you if that's what you want to do to avoid just the lecture format. I think that's I think that's perfect. I mean, the main point you really need to think about is remembering who your audience is, you know, and and what their time is worth. Um, some people are extremely detail oriented and want to dive in and drill into all those details and possibilities, but a lot of times people just don't have the time to do that. But again, your point about making it interactive, you know, the idea is give them the information and the, and the trends, and then make it interactive by talking to them about you know, what is the root cause of this or, or what are even the possible implications to help prompt their decision making, which makes you more of a facilitator. Okay. Anything else? No. All right. I'll move on then. How do you determine which visualization is good for which scenario? Stephen Few has an excellent white paper on this. It's called Selecting the Right Graph for Your Message. And it takes these eight quantitative message types and says there's a particular chart that brings that out in the best way. So for example, he says time series, you want to use a line chart. For rankings, use a bar chart. Um, for parts of whole, which is the pie concept, use a pie chart, or sometimes you can replace that with the bar chart. Um, for deviation, where you're measuring actual versus a plan, you might use a bar chart just based on the differences between those data series. And then for frequency distribution, you can use a histogram or a box plot uh, to bring that out. Um, for correlation between a couple of variables, you use a scatter plot. So he goes through and, and lists those different message types and then what the best chart type is. And he also has examples of those chart types right there. I found that that paper is about 10 or 12 pages and it's just extremely valuable. It's sort of the, the core concept of his book um, on the topic. Perfect. Um, what is the, or excuse me, which is the best chart to present text or verbatim analysis? Well, my, my experience in this one has been pretty limited with unstructured data, and by unstructured data you're talking about text, like customer feedback verbatim, as they call it, from marketing or comments. Um, I generally work with structured data, meaning numerical data organized into rows and columns with some type of label. So typically what I know about it is that there, are, there is an image called a word cloud, or sometimes called a tag cloud. 
The tag reference comes from, from the idea of metadata, so data about data. Um, there are plenty of tools online where you can take text, drop it right into the tool, and it will generate a word cloud for you. And you can see the words that appear the most often are larger, and then words that appear less often are smaller or in different parts of the, gra of the graph. Okay. Holly, anything to add there? I would say uh, the word clouds or the tag clouds are the easiest form. Uh, the other option that you have is really to go through and do some trend analysis in the, uh, the feedback so you identify what are the words or concepts and you group them together so that you can then pull out frequency analysis and then use a bar chart to show the frequency of specific concepts that come up over and over again. All right. We covered there. Or can I move on? I think we are covered. Okay. In regards to open source statistical software, do you recommend R or Python? Since I haven't worked with either, mm -hmm. I would go over to Holly to talk about that one. I say I've used both. Um, frankly, I find R a lot more easier to deal with as far as data analysis goes. It has a lot more functionality. It's a lot more intuitive than Python is. And Python sometimes will have some slightly scattered or conflicting modules. Um, <laughs> I understand the need to use open source R, but I will always emphasize the need if you're going to be doing a lot of data analysis to invest in some kind of statistical software like SPSS or SAS. Because not only does it give you everything that you need, quick, easy, and a user-friendly mode, but it also has some great data visualization tools as well built into it. Thanks, Holly. Um, how do you respond to comments that this is, in quotes, too academic and doesn't apply in the real world, especially when there's a tendency to use correlation diagrams for dimensions not correlated? I think... Um I would, I guess, disagree generally with the premise of the question that this is too academic. I think it's extremely practical to use graphics when communicating quantitative messages. Um, I think we just have to make sure we pick the right graphic for the audience. Um, there may only be a few that are applicable for a particular data set or project. You might not need a correlation diagram, meaning a scatter plot, um, for a particular project. Um, so that you should never feel that you have to go through and, and generate every kind of graphic imaginable. I mean, it's really about what are the key messages that the audience is, in, is in, interested in, and then what graphic makes the most sense um, for that. So even then, also, when you're using the, uh, the idea of a scatter plot or the quadrant chart, um, you might not need a regression line in there. You might not need to try to figure out exactly what the mathematical correlation is or what the R squared is to see how precise the model fit is. Just having those two, that two-by-two two diagram to show you where the outliers are and, or the quadrants and what behavior or what the decision management's going to take or make based on that data, you know, that may be all you need. You don't necessarily have to go to the sort of the modeling step, if you will. So I think, uh, you know, in our company, for example, of all the many things and the, all the complexity in our business, we've got one multiple regression model that we use to forecast on-time delivery in our moving network, and it's actually a very precise model. It's five variables that predict a sixth, and uh, it's the only technique that we even use as a company. And so... Um, how often you need it is really going to apply business by business, and which charts you use will apply to the messages that you need to communicate to the audience. Holly, um, do you have anything to add to that? Thanks, David. I, I have to agree that I think the two academic is definitely a dangerous concept. Um, 
any kind of data analysis, uh, especially probability or regression analysis, there's usually a lot of pushback um, from people who are used to making kind of gut decisions. Um, however, what this kind of regression or probability analysis does is kind of help even the playing field and make sure that decisions are made objectively and that you're able to actually have comparisons between groups more readily. Um, for example, we've done regression models before looking at what are the actual, what are the variables that actually drive how well a product does in the marketplace. Um, is it the cost? Is it the sales and marketing budget? And you can then able to pull out and identify what are the handful of things you need to pay attention to instead of, say, 100 variables. So that gives it a little bit of more real-world applications. Same with another organization. You can then look at sales and marketing, product development. You can even pull in then uh, one organization we did it for. We also pulled in uh, sociopolitical demographics for all of the regions, all the sites throughout the globe. What we're able to then do is pull in and identify what factors made different organizations successful based on the regression analysis. So that gave the organization the ability to identify what things they needed to invest in for the different regions and also kind of clump different sites together based on similar characteristics. Perfect. Well, that actually covers all of the questions that we had from the webinar. Um, is there kind of any last remarks that either one of y'all would like to make? I would just say there are some really great books out there on this topic. I mentioned them in the presentation. Um, Edward Tufte's book, Stephen Few's book, and then Donna Wong's book. All three of those are, are excellent starting places. And then as you uh, work on data analysis projects, just keep updating that data analysis framework or process of your company. Keep making it better. Um, everybody that gets involved in data analysis in a company can contribute to that. I suspect in many cases that feedback loop of, you know, you've done an, an analysis project, um, but often people will do the project and then not fix the framework or not adjust it. There's a, a feedback loop mix, missing, and then I think a person can take some ownership over that. It doesn't have to be a very senior person. It can make a, a nice difference in the company by sort of becoming the custodian of that process and making sure that people make it better as they go through and, and the organization experiences more data analytics processes and projects. Thanks, David. Good point. Holly, did you have anything else to add? Uh, no, not at this time. Okay, great. Well, um, that concludes the podcast for today. Um, I really appreciate, David, you joining us, um, and Holly, of course, you as well. Um, if anybody has any questions that maybe weren't covered on the webinar or on today's podcast, uh, David has informed me that it is okay if you bug him with questions. So you can reach him by email at david.doney at serva. S-I-R-V-A.com. And, of course, you can always reach Holly. Um, her email is a long one. It's H-L-Y-K-E-H-O-G-L-A-N-D at APQC.org. Uh, you can listen to the recording of the webinar that David presented on, on May 28th uh, by visiting APQC.org. Um, it does live in our APQC knowledge base online as well as the slides from David's presentation as well. Uh, but again, that concludes today's podcast. Once again, thanks, David. Thanks, Holly. We really appreciate it. Um, and keep a lookout for some additional information coming out to webinar attendees and registrants via email about what we have coming up 
um, next in the world of data visualization. So thanks again, you guys. Have a great day, and thanks for listening.